On this edition of the Scott Thompson Podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson today, we are talking about the 50th anniversary of the Manson family killings. One of the prosecutors from back then says, never let these people out. Even 50 years later, we talk to someone who tells us whether that's good advice or silly advice. We also chat with a lawyer from town who has written a great piece saying, why does Hamilton not have a museum of its own history? Everyone else does. And he's right. Where is our museum? And ungardening. Ungardening. Just like what it sounds like. Are you an ungardener? Is your neighbor an ungardener? Are you okay with them being an ungardener? What is ungardening? All that. All those answers. Coming up, stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. 50 years ago this week, the anniversary is coming up that the Manson family killings took place. I'm guessing you know about the Manson family killings, the murders. Some of you more than others, depending on what age you are, but I find it hard to believe there's anybody out there that is unfamiliar with the name Charles Manson. That, that would shock me if that was the case. And this story has come back into the conversation very recently. Again, never really goes away, but again, partially because of the anniversary and partially because of the release of the new Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is loosely, I mean, partly based around the Manson murders. Now, some of the, Charles Manson died two years ago, roughly. He was 83 years old. But some of the killers, some of the people who were in the Manson family are still in prison. And it is now a long time ago. Five decades is a long time. There's no question about it. And some, which I find very difficult to believe, but it's out there. Some have said, you know, maybe it's time to consider releasing them back into society. I mean, it's been 50 years, not leniency, but you know, 50 years, maybe enough. Again, I I don't quite understand that when you know a little bit about what happened. I don't really understand that, but, or or whatever. But one of the prosecutors in this case says, no, absolutely not. Never, ever, ever, ever. These people should never be released because he truly believes that they may try to do something again if they were back out. I want to bring in Dr. Brianna Fox, who is an associate professor in the Department of Criminology and the, Depart- and the Department of Mental Health Law and Policy at the University of South Florida. She's also someone who appeared in a documentary about the Manson family, Inside the Manson Cult. Uh, Dr. Fox, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me. So when, when this prosecutor suggests that if these people were to be released at this point 50 years later, there is a chance that they could do something to reoffend. How likely do you think that would be? Do you look at that and say, yeah, that's possible? Or do you go, nah, that's, that's probably not going to happen? Well, I, across all the different studies that I've ever looked at predicting criminal behavior, one of the best predictors of future behavior is past behavior. And when we see that these people committed such horrific offenses earlier on in life, we certainly say that puts them at a much higher risk of committing something like that again in the future. However, there's so many other things that go into understanding human behavior. So I think that's why the parole board um, and the governor wanted to make sure they considered all the factors when they were considering parole. You know, in the introduction, I said, I'm guessing that everybody out there who's listening knows all about this case or knows something about this case, but you know, there, there probably aren't. It's, it's now a generation, in some cases, maybe two generations ago. Uh, take a, a minute or two and just for those who don't know the details really well, can you give the 30,000 foot overview of this story for people who don't know it very well? Happy to. And actually, I was very young when I first heard about the murders. Um, Vincent Bugliosi's book, uh, Helter Skelter, was the first book I ever read that was true crime. And that's what set me into my career path. So I I would be happy to share. Um, Back in 1969, it was the summer of 1969, the Manson family had at this point, really hit an apex. They had been going, you know, for for some time, playing music, committing low-level crimes, doing drugs, but not really committing massive, horrible, violent crimes. Um, But that changed in the summer of 1969 when Manson decided that they were helter-skelter message out uh, and actually enact it. And so the first night on August 8th, uh, the Manson family went out and they presumed that they were, you know, commit murder and 
to do this, they were going to incite this race war that they said was helter-skelter. Um, they ended up going to the home of Roman Polanski, who at the time was a pretty famous director out in Hollywood, and his uh, girlfriend, who was an actress, Sharon Tate. She was eight and a half months pregnant, and they had some very uh, prominent friends over, such as Coffee Heiress, Abigail Folger, a celebrity hairstylist, um, a screenwriter. So they were all in this house, and the Manson family went in there and just murdered everybody. So that was the first night. Um, the second night, Manson wasn't exactly pleased with what they had done, so he decided he was going to take a more active role. He went out. They picked a couple at almost random um, on a different you know, side of town, and they decided they were going to tie them up, and they brutally murdered them too. So at this point, um, basically the fear that took the city was just uh, this was the summer of love, and at that moment it all came crashing down. Did how much of this story now? Obviously, uh, you know, back to back nights with that kind of behavior is going to create interest. But how much of this became what it did because of the Hollywood connection and the fame connection? If, if this had been them committing multiple murders against anonymous, unknown people, would we know about Charles Manson today? There was a lot of different things going on that made it just grip the headlines and and you know stick with us for five decades, as you said. Um, one of them was that there was such you know these Hollywood celebrities that were killed. Um, that was a huge aspect of it. Um, but the second part was the brutality, the fact that people were selected at random. Um, we live with this every day now, where people are killed at random and. Um, it's part of society, and we sort of become numb to it. But back then, in 1969, this was unheard of. So the idea that this happened, it just gripped everybody because they knew it could have happened potentially to anyone since the LaBiancas were selected at random. But the other part of it was this was the summer of love. It was, you know, hippie culture. And this group that actually portrayed themselves as being all about love and being hippies, they went out and committed such atrocities. So a lot of people I've talked to who were part of the hippie movement back then said, you know, it just ended it for them. They couldn't get past it at that point. It, and, and amazingly, and, and you just touch on it, amazingly, it's 50 years, this story has never gone away. I mean, there are books or movies or TV shows or something seemingly coming out all the time still, which is a remarkable thing. Yeah, I have... Two interviews about it today alone. So yes, I would say it's very, it's to this day, very popular. Most people, I think, look at Charles Manson, even though he's now gone, would look at Charles Manson as a monster, would look at him as, as, as you know, whatever word you want to apply to him. But there are others. He's been mythologized in some ways, has he not? Yes, he has. And part of it was his own creation, his own lore um, as this, you know, leader of the family and he did put out there his own philosophy and if you can believe it to this day there are people who still follow by the teachings of charles manson which would be what roughly which what are one or two things that would be the teachings of charles manson so one of the things that i mentioned was helter skelter and this came from uh the beatles white album it was a a song on their album. So it was really popular, and Charles Manson interpreted it to mean that there was an oncoming race war. And he said that anybody who was following him and stuck by him was going to survive the race war and come out on top, and they were going to rule the world, and other people were going to either perish or or not you know, be on top. So that was part of it. Um, and that helped him create that us versus them mentality. If you stick with me, you will survive and, and be on top. If you're with them, I can't promise you'll make it. So that was very useful for him and with creating his cult uh, family. But the other part was that he wanted to basically manipulate his followers and say, you know, using LSD to achieve enlightenment and and be able to fully understand love and his following, that was part of the manipulation as well. But um, he was a very strong believer in things like open relationships, um, group sex, I mean, things that he was using for his own advantage, but it was part of his teachings. So you believe there was a philosophy there 
insane though it may have been, but there was a philosophy there. He was not just a thrill killer or a cold-blooded killer killing for the sake of killing. It didn't appear that to be the the case because he was able to use that uh, that mentality to get his followers to do what he wanted. So he was able to convince them to go kill because of the helter-skelter mantra or his teachings, which he had been preaching for a long, long time before they ever committed those murders. So let's go back then to what I asked you right off the top, and that is it's 50 years later now. Uh, some of them are still around. Some of them are still in prison. How many of the family are still in prison at this point? There are five, by my count. Um, Leslie Van Houten was the most recent to go up for parole, but the other four uh, have all been denied parole since 2016. And uh, Susan Atkins died in 2009, and as you said, Manson himself died in prison in 2017. So... If they're up for parole, and, and I'm you fill in the gaps here and tell me where I'm going offline here, but if they're going up for parole and they're still not getting out after 50 years, there's probably, in my mind, two reasons. One is because the parole board figures that they still haven't done their time, or two, something they're saying still gives the parole board cause to have some concerns about them. Fair? It's a combination of the two. Uh, for some of them, they feel like they haven't truly been uh, rehabilitated, uh, and then for some, such as Leslie Van Houten, who has, you know, they say been rehabilitated. She earned her bachelor's degree and master's degree while she was in prison. She's actually become a therapist and is treating people, if you will, or tutoring them is a probably a better word, uh, while she's in jail. But the problem is because the crimes were so atrocious and because the risk, you know, even if it's small, of them committing something like that again is just too great of a risk for um, them to take. They've all been denied parole since um, 2016. And with what you said a few moments ago, where you say there are still people out there who are following this teaching or following his the Manson family mantra, philosophy, whatever you want to call it, I would guess then that these people who are still in prison would be considered celebrities, stars, leaders, whatever else, if they got out that probably they are people that these followers who are out there now would look to, would fall after? Yeah, there's that that risk that they could then become the leaders. Although I would say that one defining feature amongst most of the followers of Manson were that they were um, perhaps more susceptible to being followers rather than leaders themselves. And, and I think it's just important to note that we all think I could never be brainwashed. I would never join a cult. You know, that would never happen to me. I would never uh, kill another person if I was told to by my leader. But a lot of psychological research that has examined cults and brainwashing and even the effect of authority on our behavior has found people are willing and will actually do a lot of really crazy things that we would never believe we would engage in just because an authority figure or because somebody that we are being manipulated by tells us to do it. That is, that's the part about this whole story that I find probably the most fascinating. There's a lot of elements of this, but I, I can't ever fathom that I could be that susceptible to somebody that I would do the kind of things. And I think that probably everybody listening would say the same thing. Nobody could ever convince me to follow along and just blindly do this kind of thing. Do, do you think that's true? Or do you think, and I'm not pointing at anyone listening in the audience, but they, do you think that there's somebody out there and you say, well, you know what, don't, don't say that so fast because you may actually be susceptible. You never know. I want, I teach this in all of my classes uh, at USF and I tell all of my students about the research and say, First person who knows they would be brainwashed and knows it would happen to them would be me, even though I know all of the research and I've been trained by the FBI on on countermeasures. And I still believe because the research consistently shows how often people are susceptible to these things. So um, just to quickly explain one of the studies that I find most interesting, it's a classic um, by Yale psychologist Stanley Milgram. Back in the 1960s, he was looking into the the behaviors by people during World War II and how they were able to basically look the other way um, 
for you know the people being killed in concentration camps and also the SS soldiers who are willing to listen to authority figures and commit the atrocities that happened during World War II. And so Stanley Milgram brought participants who were very psychologically normal, healthy adult males into his lab, and he set up a shock machine where he was able to say, I'm going to tell you when you should give the person on the other side of the shock machine a shock, and you you know, you know, will have to do it. And he thought that maybe 6% of the people would shock all the way up to triple X, which is death. He thought maybe 6% will kill the person that he's telling them to kill. But he found out 60% went all the way. And that was just shocking. It just, it, it sent the psychological field into a, you know, a tizzy because we never thought humans capable of doing something like that, especially when this is a lab, uh, you know, psychologist that they didn't even know who was telling them to kill. And so if, and you just said that you think you would be susceptible to the right thing, even though you know all the tricks and everything else. So is it, even if you've been the victim of this, not the victim, they weren't a victim. I don't want to make the the killers, the family sound like they're somehow victims. But even if you have previously been drawn into a cult or drawn into follow someone that you didn't want to and do things, do you believe it's possible that it can be done again? Or do you believe you have learned something or you now know how to protect yourself better if you wanted to? I think I definitely see it occurring. And so the things that Manson had done, like the us versus them, um, things like disconnecting people from their, you know, their friends and family or the outside world. So they're not having people tell them, hey, you know, what are you doing? This seems really bizarre. Mm. Um, All of those things, now I'm better at spotting. And if I see it happening, I can kind of say to myself, all right, we have to shut this down. I'm not going to keep going forward. Uh, Very charming and persuasive. Let me just jump back for a second because we only have a couple minutes left here to the very beginning of this, because again, the 50th anniversary, this new movie that's out, uh, I'm sure for the next few days, we're going to be hearing lots and lots and lots about Charles Manson. I guarantee you, uh, well, let's go back for in, in past years prior to him passing away. If there was a TV interview with Charles Manson, I guarantee you it got TV ratings. People tuned in. Why are we so fascinated by people like this, by killers, by horrible criminals, because there is, there is definitely a fascination. Why is that? We love feeling close to danger. Um, Think about why we go on roller coasters, why we love to go see scary movies. It's a feeling of danger and yet being completely safe. I don't think anybody would want to trade places with Sharon Tate or the LaBiancas, um, but the bi- ability to feel a little bit in danger or to try to understand the criminal brought me into my job, I think is tantalizing for people. It's something that um, we are drawn to, but nobody ever would want to be the victims of these types of offenders. Is that the same reason then why... Uh, at, at a higher level, perhaps, why there are women, and it seems like it's always women, I'm sure there are men too, but why there are women who seem to want to connect with horrible people who are in prison. We always hear these stories of women who are fans or groupies of these killers. Is that the, the same psychology? Yeah, Ted Bundy was proposed to multiple times, even while he was on death row. Um, and one of the reasons that I believe this occurs is physiological in nature. Our bodies cannot differentiate between arousal due to fear and arousal due to attraction to another person. And so when you feel that kind of fear, um, you actually are more physiologically likely to feel, you know, like, oh, I'm actually in love with this person. Um, so that's just a theory, but um, research does support that occurring. Which could explain then why some people were willing to, back in 69 and 68, willing to get close and hang around and be part of the Manson family at the beginning. Absolutely. And I've watched videos uh, from inside the Manson family at the time. They had taken some um, incredible video. And you see those women actually believe they were in love with Charlie. And that's a huge part of trying to understand why they would commit the crimes that they did. It is a fascinating psychological study. Um, As I say, I'm sure we'll be seeing lots and lots about it over the next few days. Dr. Brianna Fox from the University of South Florida, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me on. Uh, and, And to the point about this, 
you know, what we say, people say all the time, oh, I don't, why, why does the media show all the crime? Why does the media show all the bad news? We want happy news. We want stories about puppies. Look on Netflix. It's a perfect example. Look at how many documentaries and fictional and made from fiction and based on true story. Look at how many stories and shows there are about murders and mass murderers. And Netflix monitors every time someone clicks on one of those shows. They know how many people are watching. They're not making those shows unless those are being watched. They're not buying those shows unless they're being watched. So you can, and I'm not saying that you're lying all you who are listening, but you can say, I want stories of puppies and kittens and unicorns. You can say it till you're blue in the face. But the truth is society backs up their entertainment choices with stuff about crime and murders and stuff like that, which says deep down, we seem to be very, very interested in this stuff. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. I mentioned the Arkells coming in off the top and them being from Hamilton because there's a lot of people in this city. There's a lot of things in this city that are worth celebrating, that are worth honoring. There's a lot of moments of history from this city that probably we should do something to honor, to celebrate, to mark at the very least, to identify. I mean, I don't know if every single crime Every single murder, every even if they're well-known, I don't know if we want to honor or celebrate them, but to mark them, to point them out as part of our history. It, this city has a fascinating history. If you've spent any time at all in this city or paying attention to this city, uh, you would understand this city has a very, very interesting history. But there was a piece that was written in the Hamilton Spectator the other day and as I was reading it, I, boy, it, it really resonated with me. It really struck home. The headline is Hamilton's place, question mark. Why is Hamilton the only city without a city museum? And I'm sure we're not the only city, but the point is most big cities, most major cities have some kind of place that honors the history of that town, of how it got to where it was, of the people, of the things, of the moments, whatever else. We don't question is why. Well, the author of that piece that was in the spec is Dermot Nolan. He's a lawyer in town and he's obviously as well uh, a great writer. His sister was a great writer. She used to work for the spec and now he clearly has the family gene. He joins us now. Dermot, how are you today? Oh, hi, Scott. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. So you raise a great point that I had not even really thought of, hadn't even considered until I read this, and then it just started uh, digging away at me. Why? You answer the question, maybe, if you can. Why don't we have a museum to honor the city of Hamilton and the things that happened here? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Uh, if you look at almost any other city in Ontario, you they have they have uh, a central museum, and and some of them are quite elaborate and uh, spectacular. Um, the amazing thing to me is that Hamilton, which is the old, second oldest city in Ontario, uh, with uh, just a multifaceted history uh, in every subject matter you could imagine, um, it doesn't have uh, a central museum. We've got some very good mm-hmm. museums that celebrate pieces of our history, you know, like Dundurn and Battlefield and uh, the Warplane Museum and and there's all we have we have lots of really good museums but uh, we don't have a, a museum that celebrates Hamilton just Hamilton and all of it, all of its dimensions um, and that's a real shame uh, Toronto has just uh, decided to, Toronto didn't have one either which is odd uh, Toronto being the biggest city with probably the most uh, significant history as the capital of the province, etc. But Toronto uh, has uh, moved very uh, aggressively to change that. They're going to change the old city hall, their beautiful old city hall, into a Toronto museum. And that's underway. Uh, It's in the planning stages, but it's underway. And Fortunately, in Hamilton, we now have something underway as well, uh, although we, we've got a long, long way to go. Uh, City Council has uh, uh, asked uh, that its um, uh, culture division uh, undertake a study of, of our general, all of our museums, and develop a museum strategy, but included in that 
is specifically a study of uh, the need for a central museum. Mm. And right now there's a public consultation going on. Uh, they've hired a firm of, of con- consultants who, who are now um, testing the waters and asking the people of Hamilton to uh, let them know whether they feel there should be a museum. And uh, we, those of us who feel strongly about it are encouraging people to fill out the survey that's available online that I published the uh, survey um, uh, link in the article uh, <laughs> off the top of my head. I well, don't I'll throw it out here. Should, it's hcm.planlocal.ca is the address for that one. Terrific. Uh, and uh, if people uh, are interested and they and they want to make themselves heard, uh, that's the place to go. Now, there are lots of questions about all of the museums on, on that survey, but one of the questions is, do we need a, a central Hamilton museum? And uh, needless to say, I feel very strongly that it's long, long overdue, and it's a real omission to your question, uh, that, uh, you know, it's really a mystery why we don't have one, uh, and uh, uh, my view is that it's time to get going on one. Well, Dermot, it and seems... The other thing it... is that there are several really good sites that have been uh, discussed. Uh, you know, we could, we, could, uh, we could build it in the, um, possibly in the Discovery Center, the Marine Discovery Center. We could build it in the art gallery. We could, uh, as part of the art gallery, we, there uh, the bank, the old Bank of Montreal building, Dundurn Castle, Whitehern. There's lots of sites that could be developed into uh, really great centers for Hamilton. It, it seems to me that the idea of a city museum, a city that has it, it seems to be indicative of a community that feels good about itself and feels it has something to, a story to share about where it's come from and a city that has something to boast about. It's, I mean, it's, you can say it's just going to be a bunch of old artifacts, but it seems that it's, to me, it seems more than that. It seems to be, as I say, a sign that a city is feeling like it's got something to say. Exactly. And the hope would be that it would be a living uh, a living place, uh, you know, a place where we can really celebrate our city, uh, have uh, city events, uh, performances, uh, lectures, um, study groups, uh, uh, research. Uh, it's not just, I, I, I don't imagine it as simply a collection of old, old archives uh, gathering dust, but mm. a real living space where we can come together and celebrate our community. Whenever there's anything Hamilton happening, that would be the, pl- that would be the place to go, the go-to place. Would people attend? Would people go to a museum about Hamilton? Well, our museum, uh, our existing museums, actually uh, have uh, attendance uh, figures now that are on the upswing, uh, and significantly on the upswing. People are interested in this city, uh, particularly people who uh, are coming here from Toronto and uh, moving here. Uh, you know, Hamilton's undergoing a renaissance, and the people who come here want to know about it. And the people who are here are very proud to, uh, to show it off. Um, and our history is so important. I mean, if, if you think about even just one aspect of our history, that I, I believe is uh, pivotal to our country, and that is that, you know, it was from Hamilton that really the uh, U.S. Uh, forces were repelled in the War of 1812 that saved our country from annexation. And the same kind of thing happened again in in, uh, in the 1860s when the Fenian raids came across at Ridgeway and uh, successfully, uh, but were pushed back by forces coming from Hamilton. Hamilton's a pivotal city in the development of this country. And uh, I think people will, uh, you know, I've I've said, if you build it, they will come. I have no doubt about that. I agree with you with one caveat, and that would be the reason I asked whether you think people would attend is because Great museums are great places to visit, and you. I was just down in California, and I was at the Ronald Reagan Library. Agree with his politics, disagree with his politics. The museum is outstanding, and you walk through, and and you there's a story that you're told, and it's and there's great stuff to see. But Dermot, there are a lot of museums. I'm not necessarily saying around here, but there's a lot of museums that can be a little bit dull. If you're going to do this, you have to do it right. Absolutely, and and uh, you know. It, whether it's dull or not is a function of 
who creates it, who manages it, um, and and how it's and how it's done. Um, you know, I can envisage a permanent collection of uh, uh, pieces of our history uh, from all of all of the areas where we have a history. Uh, where you know you have uh, exhibits that change, like a like an art gallery, where you have a fantastic collection, but the collection isn't on display all the time. Uh, what's on display uh, adopts a certain theme, and it's curated. And you know, for uh, this uh, several month period, you might have a, a, a fascinating exhibit about uh, some element of Hamilton sports history, and then another time you might have. Uh, some exhibit you mentioned. I, I was interested in your lead-in. You're talking about the Arkells. I mean, they're making history right now for Hamilton. The uh, uh, the rich uh, music history of Hamilton, all kinds of music. Uh, in fact, there was talk of having a, uh, a music hall of fame in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, military, political. We got an amazing political history. We've got an amazing industrial history, great labor history. We've got a workers' museum. I mean, you just think of the topic, and uh, and 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 there is an amazing history in Hamilton, and there isn't there there isn't really any other city in Ontario, with perhaps the exception of Toronto, that has a history that even comes close to it. So we've got a lot to show. Uh, so I have no doubt that if if we build it, uh, it will be a, a really vital part of our community. Do we know if, I mean, a museum only works really if you have stuff to show. I mean, you can paste pictures on a wall, but do we know if artifacts from the city's history exist somewhere? Well, there yes, they do. They exist all over the city, but uh, there is a massive collection uh, that the city has uh, stored in a warehouse, uh, climate-controlled warehouse down in the industrial section of town that nobody sees. Uh, but it, there, there's thousands and thousands of uh, pieces of our history there, and there's pieces of our history all over the city, and a lot of it in private hands, where people are actually looking for a place to donate it so that it can be seen and celebrated and, and cherished. Uh, so it's, it's a, they're waiting for a home, those things. And, uh, we just haven't uh, had the political will or initiative to give them a home. And I, I really think that now's the time to do it. And I'm very happy to hear that the city's, the city's at least looking seriously at it. Would you like to see in in utopia here, if we could have a utopian museum, would you like to see some of the, uh, well, obviously you're not going to move Dundurn Castle into a museum, but there are other things you could move into a museum. I mean, the the gallery of distinction, for example, they have the photos, the pictures, I think they're in the art gallery now. They got moved from the convention center. Uh, But that would be something that you would say, oh, you know, the gallery of distinction people, that would make sense to be in a museum rather than on the wall of the art gallery. Could, Could you see a bunch of different things being incorporated into this? Well, that's a no-brainer. I mean, to me, uh, that's the kind of thing that celebrates Hamilton uh, and the people who've made Hamilton. So, of course, that would be a perfect uh, match. Uh, And I I, I think of things, too, when I talk about it being a living facility, that I think of things happening there, a happening place. Um, I mean, even the Gallery of Distinction celebrations uh, depending on on how the what shape the museum takes you know if you had a, an area for events and for um, performance and and uh, um, I, I think of you know you could if, if it became sort of the Hamilton place the place for Hamilton you could you could have a celebration of the inauguration of the new city council every two years or whatever it is. And uh, things like that. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Hamilton wins the Grey Cup. Well, where are you going to celebrate that? Well, you might celebrate it at the stadium, but there'll be a downtown place to say there's something really important happening in Hamilton. Let's do it at what I've called Hamilton's Place. The one... Gli- I don't know if it's a glitch. The one complication, perhaps, that may that I thought may come out of this is... 
that a lot of museums these days, there's a lot of sensibilities, conflicting sensibilities that different people have about what should be there. What is our history? Was this good history or was this bad history? Is this something we celebrate or is this something we don't? How do you, in 2019, when there seems to be everyone has an opinion and everyone has a strong opinion and everyone has an opinion that means the other person's opinion is wrong, which sadly is where we are, um, how, how do you create a museum in 2019 and not have the thing become completely political and completely a fight? Well, you need good leadership, and you need, uh, you need people who are prepared to cooperate in a living uh, undertaking. That, that, you know, of course, uh, there's controversy. I mean, that's part of history. History is full of controversy, and the present is full of controversy. So uh, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to say. Okay, there's going to be different views. And there's going to have we're going to have a lively debate, perhaps, about what what form the museum should take, uh, what location the museum should be in, what should be celebrated or showcased in the museum. Those are all issues that are, are, are the kinds of issues that you want to have people, the city, the citizens of Hamilton engage upon, engage on, and. Um, with good leadership and with uh, passionate Hamiltonians who care about their city and realize that the fabric of the city is uh, dense and it's multifaceted, uh, they'll find they'll find what should be celebrated and it will change. It, it, as I say, if it's a living facility, it will be a facility in motion. It won't be stagnant. And we, we Hamiltonians are, uh, I think we're a pretty special breed. I think Hamilton's a, a really unique city, and I think it's a city that has learned how to welcome uh, people from all over the world and, and has a strong indigenous uh, history. And we, we, we have, uh, we have uh, an ability to come together and uh, really understand what we're all about where we've come from and where we're going. I've I've complete confidence in Hamiltonians in that regard. I loved the piece in the paper. I would encourage people to go read it online. Uh, again, Hamilton Place, question mark. It's by Dermot Nolan. Um, it, it is a something to think about for sure, and I sincerely hope that people do make something happen with this. I really do, because Dermot, I think it's a terrific idea, and I'm glad you raised it. Thanks for taking the time today. Scott, thanks for talking about it, and... Uh, I think it's really important that the message get out there, and you've done a good job by doing that today. Dermot Nolan, thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Something that you may be familiar with, either because you've done this or because maybe you have a neighbor who's done this. For the longest time, if you lived in North America, suburbs, even downtown, you were probably striving for the perfect, well-manicured, well-cut, well-kept green lawn. Having a perfect front lawn was, well, you know, there was always the guy on the street. Most people had a guy on their street who was out there all the time making sure his lawn was the primo lawn. Mr. Nichols was the guy that I grew up with. Mr. Nichols' lawn was perfect. If a weed had ever popped up on Mr. Nichols' lawn, I'm sure a flashing red light and siren went off in his house and he was out there immediately to collect that weed and pull it out. We like, still, I think most of us like our law, our yards to look neat and tidy and well shorn, no weeds, no blades of grass out of place, not growing into the curb or the driveway. Well, here's the twist. Some people today have intentionally decided to turn that on their head. They are calling it ungardening, ungardening. You can guess what that means. Question is, and I want to bring in someone who knows her way around a garden. Is this a very modern, progressive approach to good environment and and helping the environment? Or is this simply an excuse to be lazy and have an overrun garden? It could be one of two things. Uh, Kathy Renwald, you know her. She is a freelance contributing columnist for the Star and the Spec. She writes about all kinds of things. You know her from her days on TV too, but you know her from all of her stuff recently. Kathy, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. Nice to be there. Uh, So a neighbor down the, this is true story, a neighbor down the street from me, I noticed about a week ago, 
they have done some work on their garden or sort of work on their garden and they now have a sign up on it among a bunch of things saying we're feeding the pollinators. Is this a legit position for someone in suburbia to now take to put up a sign and essentially leave their garden to grow? (laughs) Well, uh, I like the pollinator signs and I like the pollinating garden a lot better than I like the term the (laughs) ungarden because to me the un. Ungardening seems to imply that gardening is a bad thing, which it's not, or that it's useless. So if you're gardening and you have um, a a slight knowledge of what you're doing, you're already creating a pollinator's garden to a certain degree. Um, And and here's the thing, like pollinator's garden, the ungarden, I I agree with everything in principle, but I do think they require work that people don't anticipate and that you want to make them decent looking and even pretty because, you know, when you go for a walk in the woods, you're hiking. I don't think you often say, boy, is that ever ugly and unkempt. It looks natural, but it still has beauty about it. So so explain the concept then. If someone, whether we like the term ungarden or pollinator's garden or whatever, explain what the concept behind this is. Well, well, for pollinator gardens, which are, I I think people understand better, uh, it's planting plants that birds and bees, other kinds of insects, wildlife in general, can use and that they like. So it's not just letting your lawn grow and everything that lands in your property to grow into some unkempt state. It's really making conscious decisions about putting plants in the garden that are versatile and do have a a role to fill in uh, attracting pollinators. So, you know, that's pretty straightforward. But you, you have to study it a bit. You have to know what you're doing, and there's lots of information about it. So, good. Because there will be some people, I guarantee it, who will hear this story, who will read about this, and they will say, hey, you know what? Pulling all those dandelions is a giant pain in the caboose. I think we're going to call our grass the ungardened grass in our neighborhood and say, hey, we're pollinating. Because, you know, dandelions, when they turn all white and blow away, they're pollen. Uh, We're good. We're helping the environment. I hope not, but I do (laughs) see that happening. But I don't think that's going to be a trend. Uh, like I said before, you can't just let your garden, your grass grow and have it turn into a pollinator garden. It's like that old myth many years ago where you could buy a can of wildflower seeds and sprinkle them on bare earth and you'd have a wildflower garden. It doesn't happen because the weeds usually colonate everything quickly and you just have thistles and quack grass and horrible stuff and not beautiful wildflowers. So um, I think the people that have the pollinator signs are genuine there's always going to be people that do see it as an excuse to just let, let everything go, which is really unfortunate because it gives pollinator gardens a bad name too. Uh, if you have enough density of weeds, doesn't it actually look low like it could be a pollinator's garden? <laughs> well, you know what happens is um, weeds, when they start to take over and you get an aggressive weed, maybe it's crabgrass or a thing called bindweed or knotweed, they take over everything. So, Some of these weeds are invasive species from Europe, let's say, so they offer nothing to wildlife. Um, And they also uh, crowd out beneficial plants. So what you need is diversity in the garden. That's the key. You can't just say, I'm going to let the grass grow and it's going to be wonderful. You have to have perennials, shrubs, and trees if you really want a true, natural pollinator's garden. It requires some work for sure. So I'm reading a story on this today. It was on, uh, uh, where was it here? It was on yahoo.com about this. And there's a couple who have decided to go this route and they were being interviewed for this story. And their position is reaction in the neighborhood to what they're doing is decidedly mixed. That's going to happen, right? Because if you now have a garden that does not look like the typical neighborhood garden, you are going to have people who think this is terrific that you're doing something different. And there's going to be people who say it looks like an eyesore. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, I do think that react, sort of reaction is relaxing, though, especially in the downtown core, let's say, of Hamilton, where the gardens are more diverse. But I also think even in suburbia, which was the typical lawn, geraniums, privet hedges, you are definitely seeing more interesting gardens with uh, a diversity of plant material. So I think it's becoming accepted. Uh, although, you know, you do drive around, you see those massive estates where it's all grass, but, uh, you know, there's something else going on with those people because just having grass doesn't really benefit much of anything. Certainly, if you live in the country, I don't even think there's a discussion about this. If you have acreage and you want to have a 
garden like this, if you want to have a pollinator's garden, I don't think anyone's going to have any issue. In fact, probably most of your field is that anyway. But is there such a thing as in a residential area, is there such a thing as too wild or too pollinator a garden? I'm I'm not sure if this still exists, but you know there was a time when your neighbor could call the city, and the city could come and tell you to cut stuff down because there were rules on how high plant material could. I think get. it was like three feet. Yeah, yeah, and so if it was kind of deliberate, looked like an abandoned property, they would come and say, you know, post a notice, and you've got to cut this stuff. Now, if your garden front garden is full of um, coneflowers, sunflowers, plants that are definitely get beyond three feet. But it looks more deliberate. It's colorful. I don't think the city's going to show up. Uh, maybe the neighbors won't complain. So I think there's people are becoming educated. They know the difference between giving up abandonment and taking a stab at having a, a garden that welcomes birds and bees and butterflies. Okay, Kathy, but here's the thing. Now, you, you uh, what part of gardening, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of gardening is not just for your own self-satisfaction. It's to make something beautiful that other people are going to see as well. I don't think anyone's trying to build a garden that everyone's going to go, oh, that's disgusting. So you are creating something that is hopefully appealing. So if you choose to live in a city, if you choose to live in proximity to other people, should you be asking, should you be considering them as well if you decide to do this? Or do you just say, if you don't like it, too bad. My garden, my rules. You know what? I agree with you, and I've always thought that way and written about that, that I do think you uh, garden for other people as well. It's almost like a, um, a civic uh, benefit, right, to put something out there that people like and enjoy. So here's, here's the point I'm going to make. If you are a good gardener, you can have a pretty garden and it looks tidy and still have all kinds of plants that benefit uh, birds, butterflies, etc. Especially if you have flowering trees that produce fruit, shrubs in the same category, things like daisies and daisies family of plants. Uh, they provide seed and nectar and landing uh, pads and also nesting material. So I think you could have a garden that is beneficial to many different types of uh, animals and still have your neighbor say, hey, that's pretty, that's really nice. Uh, you know, you cut, cut the edges and make sure you have a nice path. Even something that simple makes a big uh, dent in what other people might say is unruly and weedy. Because the other issue, and and this again, it comes from living in a in an area where you're residential or where there's other people around. There are going to be people who do have allergies, and mm-hmm. and you know, uh, like again, it, it's your property, I suppose. So it's an, it's ultimately your choice. But man, how to not make a good neighbor if the next door neighbor kid has a horrible allergy and every time he goes outside, he's now sniffling and sneezing. True. Uh, I think if if they knew what the allergy was and they informed you, you could maybe deal with it. But, you know, some people are allergic to birch trees, and I don't think everybody's going to start cutting their birch trees down. So, uh, and, and, of course, people always label goldenrod as a terrible plant for allergies. It's actually ragweed because it is growing at the same time as goldenrod. It gets labeled uh, as a bad plant. So if you know what the allergy is, you could do something to accommodate the neighbor, but... Um, the whole mania about allergies and plants, I think that can go over the top and in the wrong direction as well. In this piece that I was reading that got this thing started, um, it is very clear that there are still questions, though, that people have. So you, Kathy Renwald, may decide, you know what, I'm going to put in a great pollinator's garden. And if you're not all that adept at gardening or if you're just trying yeah. There can still be confusion about whether or not this is a pollinator's garden or just an overkept thicket. Yes. And so if you do it right, mm-hmm. can someone actually tell? If they are driving by and they see this, can they visually say, that person's just a lazy homeowner and that person's doing something really good for the environment? I think most people can tell. I mean, uh, you know, if you drive around, I live downtown, you can tell the difference between somebody who's really interested in gardening and they might have a mass of plants that look kind of wild. Those are different than the people that let the grass grow tall. They might have um, junk in the front yard. Their stuff is leaning into the neighbors. It's very distinct what those uh, people are doing, and they're just, uh, they don't care. They don't care what the public thinks. So, uh, I, I, and I think if you're slightly educated about gardening, you can really tell, because you can, you know what the plants are. Say, oh, look at the butterfly weed, the butterfly bush, that looks great. 
So I think we're getting to the point there's enough publicity about it, you know, enough articles in the papers, magazines, online, that people know how to uh, tell the difference. I mean, just look at a house that's empty, nothing's been cared for, that's your bad garden. Is there a difference between, there's two, there's another term that is thrown around, I don't know if it means the same thing, is rewilding the same as ungardening? I would say so, I would say so. Um, I think people just invent new terms to keep the interest up, right? Maybe, you know, because, you know, when you're writing about stuff or you want people to pay attention, then you come up with a catchy name. So rewilding, same thing. So, and, of course, the native plant garden got a lot of publicity. Uh, and all of that, you just have to keep in mind that uh, introducing the wild is one thing, but you have to know what you're planting because your backyard's probably not like the Bruce Trail. So you plant stuff that likes to be in shade, and you're planning it full sun, it's going to die. So, like I said, you have to do some homework, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, I can't even get my grass to stay alive, let alone some sort of thing. Uh, last thing before I let you go, because the ultimate goal, if you are truly ungardening or pollinating or whatever else, and you're not just allowing your grass and weeds to go three feet high, and I've seen that before too, and I, I agree with you, you usually can tell because you just can tell. But if you are doing this for pollination reasons, by definition, you are going to be attracting bugs, correct? Correct. Yep. Uh, and some of those bugs, we don't really mind so much if there's ladybugs or bumblebees or that kind of thing, but is it, are we not also attracting mosquitoes at times and other things? Well, uh, very possibly, but here's the deal. If you have a whole bunch of different types of plants, plant diversity, you attract all kinds of bugs, which is what you want. If you just have unkempt grass, you're a mosquito haven. But if you've got your coneflowers, your butterfly weed, etc., then you have birds that eat the insects, and you have other insects that eat other insects. So you need diversity in plant material, and then you'll get diversity in the insects and everything else that's visiting the garden. I think that they police each other, you know? We, well, yeah, you know what? I, as I say, I, I drove by the neighbor the other day and I saw the sign and I said, your garden at least looks like there's some level of organization to it. So I'm, I'm believing the sign that isn't just an excuse, but I'm betting that there are a few people with those long grass, unkept grass that are thinking, great, put in the sign. No one's going to bug me. We'll see. You know, you know what? I, I think people put the sign up. They believe in it. I think it's the people where there's no sign and just tall weeds. They don't believe in it. See, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree because I think it's like people who put up the fake sign for the uh, security system in their house that don't really have one. We know we can psych everybody out if we put this up. I don't have to cut my grass now, but ho- I'm, I'm hoping you're right, Kathy. Because uh, well, we'll find out, won't we? We w- we'll find out when the city shows up and tells you to cut your <laughs> pollinator lawn. Right, Kathy Renwald. Appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Okay, thanks, Scott. It is. Um, th- see, the one down the street from us looks nice. That's the difference. We've also had someone on our street before who has been to the three-foot uncut grass. You can tell the difference. I'm just waiting for the person when the city shows up and says, you have to cut your grass to say, hey, man, I'm just pollinating. We'll see how that goes with the city. We'll see if they make them cut it or if that's a human rights violation or something. I'm sure there's some excuse. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.